Markets Conversation is a new IAM podcast where we discuss topics of importance to capital markets participants with product owners, subject matter experts, and industry leaders. Number one best piece of advice I've had is don't be an asshole. Remember you're dealing with human beings, particularly finance. We forget that people are humans, really. You know, it's very, very tempting to treat them as in, in, in a trading environment as an adversary or from a kind of markets perspective as just a statistic. So I think for people starting, I would say identify within fintech a space that interests you, a space that's, that's going to grow, understand tech, understand the finance part. Try and learn both because really you're applying tech to solve financial problems. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Markets Conversation. I'm Ali Curry. On today's episode, we'll discuss how the standardized approach for counterparty credit risk, more commonly known as SACR, applies to over-the-counter derivatives, exchange-traded derivatives, and FX. SACR is rapidly becoming the standard across the globe for bank regulatory capital, replacing SEM, or current exposure method. What this means for market participants and global markets and products is that, well, it's all very complex and varied. But to help us break it all down, our guests today are Chris Barnes and Amir Kwaja from Ion Markets. Let's get started. Chris Barnes and Amir Kwaja, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ali. Great. Amir, before we get to what SACR will and will not do for cleared and uncleared markets, let's back up a little bit and work through some of the foundational topics. So let's start with defining what regulatory capital is and why it's important to the banking industry. So if we step back, you know, you know, banks have a special role in the economy, right? They essentially extend credit. Because they have this special role, they're highly regulated, yeah, by central banks essentially in those economies. And that regulation also entails uh, requires, you know, a few things, but from a capital point of view, it requires banks because they have this special role in the economy to have a minimum amount of capital to conduct their businesses. That capital is there because banks need to keep functioning and be able to cover expected and unexpected losses in their businesses, right? So, so what happens, you know, I have the depositor, deposit some money in a bank, that bank lends that to a borrower then, or a, someone needs a mortgage or a corporates lend, a borrow and lend money from, from banks, right? So they always engage in this credit extension business where they're transforming deposits into loans, transforming maturities, extending credit. And they're really, they're faced with credit risk where borrowers can default, right? So banks need to have enough capital to cover those defaults and keep running a smooth business extending credit. But that's the main kind of reason. And Mary, in terms of that, right, I, I think it's important to recognize that this is not one for one, right? A bank doesn't take out a deposit and then lend that out. There is a multiplier applied to it. We're not talking about a blockchain bank, right, which is uh, zero leverage, 100% deposits, 100% loans. There is a degree of leverage here. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think, so, so again, so because you have that uh, leverage in a bank, it's very important to maintain a minimum amount of capital that is set by regulators, right? And I think the, the other important point is that it also creates a level playing field between banks in different countries, right? So the last thing you want is, you know, institutions that have lower capital requirements. But as a shareholder, you're looking at return on capital, right? Firms with very little capital would earn more return on capital for the same profit. This minimum capital is a global standard that is required for all banks to maintain because they all play the same sort of role in the financial system to extend credit, to transform maturities. So I think I think that's very important. A to, so they need capital to cover 
expected losses in their businesses going forward and the need to have similar levels of capital. Now, the reality is most banks hold far more capital than a minimum required by regulators because shareholders demand that, right? So shareholders have their own view on how much capital banks should hold. So I think it's important. And I think the main risk that banks take from a capital point of view is counterparty credit risk. The fact that one of their borrowers can default. By far the largest amount of red capital is for credit risk, which is where SACA comes in. For most businesses in banking, right? And there are businesses that take on more market risk, right? They're trading, they're more flat or take on more operational risk with not standing credit so much. But by and large, you know, you have credit risk, market risk, operational risk. And most banking businesses and most bank groups or that all bank groups, the largest risk is counterparty credit risk for which they require to maintain a large amount of capital, well above the minimum minimum from regulators. And that's really why we're talking about um, SACA on this call, right? Because it's, it's the main the main metric. I think it's just important. Let's talk about that for a minute. Although it's been around for a number of years, SACR, there's been some iterations and there's a new one. Let's uh, break that down a little bit. What is new about what just happened with, with SACR and um, how does it affect the markets? So I think from, <laughs> from my perspective, the biggest impact we're seeing from SACA is that it's gone live across pretty much all jurisdictions now for leverage ratio. Leverage ratio is, or historically, was a regulatory reaction to the global financial crisis of 2008. The regulatory community recognized that banks were undercapitalized. And so they introduced a very crude methodology, uh, which looked at the gross notional of derivatives to apply a leverage ratio over and above standard uh, capital calculations for banks. That was intentionally crude, and that was based on something called the current exposure methodology, or SEM. Broadly speaking, what leverage ratio did was led particularly the uh, derivatives markets down a path of intense concentration on something called compression, whereby uh, banks are highly motivated to get rid of as much gross notional as possible. And so if you have, for example, a trade which is a buy of five years versus a sell of uh, five years versus another counterparty. Under SEM, under old leverage ratio rules, it's massively beneficial to compress those two trades into a risk neutral package, effectively step out of both of those trades and lose all of that gross notional. Now, what SACA does is when it's introduced for leverage ratio, it changes that balance. So SACA is what we consider to be a risk-sensitive model. So instead of being driven by gross notional, it's now driven by net risk. Now, there's some intricacies around the model in terms of how you calculate that net risk, uh, whether you're calculating it on an asset class level, whether you're calculating it on a counterparty level, and what the risk factors are exactly. That's why we as market participants involved in software, you know, are, are, are interested in it because that's modelable and we have input data that we can put through a model and we can give you an output that gives you SACA metrics. What it means from a market participant perspective is that it can impact market behaviour. So as I said, compression was a massive focus under SEM for leverage ratio reasons. Move to SACA. What SACA does is focus you on net risk. So you don't really care if with the same counterparty, you have a buy of five years and a sell of five years. If we just talk about pure SACA metrics, 
that is a risk neutral package. Um, and so it will not impact your uh, SACA results. Now, what it does do, and we'll get onto this a little bit more later, is that it really changes the behavior for large directional market participants. So SACA is, is risk neutral. So the more risk you have in your book, the larger the SACA metrics will be. Chris, and I guess you're just stopping back so a bit of history. So again, you know, when the Basel Accords in 19, 1998 were introduced, 88, right? So really, you know, you need a simple standard method that could be used by all banks, right? So so for counterparty credit, SEM or current exposure is a simple method. It can be used by any bank, no bigger how small. It just uses the gross notional per trade times some factor, right? Now that meant it's very simple, so it's attractive, anyone can use it, but it's not at all risk sensitive, right? So as Chris said, if I pay or receive 100 million, in that model, I've got 200 million times some factor. Whereas in reality, if you're looking at risk, those things net, I have no risk, right? So it was a crude model, but it worked well for its function. But it also meant that banks that were global and very sophisticated went to internal models, which they can get approval for that are essentially much more quantitative and sophisticated, but not transparent and not comparable between institutions, right? So I think now with SACA, we have a chance of having a model that is risk sensitive. So it recognizes pays, receives, buy, sells. So it's a, it's a much more appropriate risk model that can be used by all firms in, in a sensible way. And it, it removes, you know, some of this behavior about around compressing gross notion for the sake of improving a reg metric, right? Not for any other benefit. Right. So I think, you know, we often talk about regulations drive behavior. It's fine if it makes sense, but often that behavior is just trying to improve a metric, right? In this case, reduce the SEM capital credit number, right? By having a much better method like SACA replacing SEM, we now have a credit metric that is risk sensitive. So things offset, right? We don't need to worry about compression so much. We still need it, but nowhere near in the same sort of scale. Right. So hence, it leads to a much better allocation of capital for counterparty credit risk right? than the standard method, which could overstate. And I think to pick up to Chris's point about leverage ratio. So I think uh, despite counterparty credit capital in the crisis, it transpired that with hindsight, it did not stop banks from taking immense leverage, more leverage than was imagined, right? Because the capital ratios define the amount of capital you have, even though most banks had more capital than the minimum reg required. Is still proved to be not enough, and and you saw some bailouts or lots of bailouts in the, in the subprime crisis in the G6. So that worked through with regulators to induce a new metric for amount of the amount of leverage, right? And partly because I think you know much of this exposure is off is off balance sheet, right? When we're talking about derivatives and we talk about balance sheets and asset liabilities, derivative exposure doesn't show up in the classic accounting way on on a balance sheet. As assets and liabilities, right? So, so that's why having leverage ratio, you know, I think really solves some of the constraints that Chris can touch upon that we're missing in the capital models, right? In terms of these bank capital models, I think what, what we have to accept as market participants is that there isn't a, a right answer, but SACA is undoubtedly a better answer than SEM. And so whilst it's, you know, it's really, really tempting when you uh, go through the blogs on the calculations of SACA or, or the model and you step through it and, and, and you go through the calculations to have a critical hat on, you know, and go, well, really, we uh, should have some correlation between FX pairs, etc. You know, that is just a step too far from, from uh, going from where we were, which was gross notional based with no real tie in with actual risk 
to Saka now, which is a risk sensitive model. That is a great step forward. Yeah, agreed. And agreed. And I think from Chris's point, you know, we don't want our banks to have too much capital, same way as we don't want to have too little capital, right? With gross measures like SEM, there's a danger that many businesses have way too much capital than is required for that risk type, counterparty credit risk, because it doesn't allow for netting, right? And and netting has been a huge part of the, of the growth and derivatives in the, in the last 20 years. If we look at ISDA and netting, it's been a huge function of why swap markets have grown, right? The fact that's ignored in, in SEM, you know, is just a travesty. I think having SACA corrects that, having clearing, you know, it's, it's kind of very important, which we could touch upon, why SACA is much better for cleared portfolios, right? And I think the key point is we don't want too much capital within a bank. We want the appropriate amount of capital, but there's no right answer, right? It needs to be appropriate for the risks they're facing against their counterparts and in the market. This episode is brought to you by ION. At ION, our clear derivatives solutions automate your complete trade lifecycle and deliver actionable insights whenever and wherever you need them. We offer execution and order management, post-trade processing, and a complete front-to-back business solution. To learn more, visit us at iongroup.com slash markets or email us at markets at iongroup.com. Chris, this update to Sacker, it's been referred to as the supermodel. I'm guessing because some of those changes have improved on what was previously being used, such as SEM. What does this new Sacker supermodel mean for, say, clear derivatives or uncleared derivatives and FX in particular? I'm going to start this answer with a name check, actually, because the first person I I ever heard refer to Saka as a supermodel was uh, Tobias Becker, who's now at Quantile. He's really a guy that gets into the weeds of Saka, right? And he was explaining part of a presentation how Saka is appearing in, in more and more elements of Basel. Now that Basel have a risk-sensitive model, the temptation is to introduce it into more and more areas of red cap. So as I said, SACA has been around for a while. Probably uh, the first time it was published was 2013-14. It's just been implemented across a number of jurisdictions for leverage ratio. So now you have a risk-sensitive measure of leverage ratio. SACA has been available to use for counterparty credit risk, so to calculate your credit risk-weighted assets since 2015, 16, 17, depending on the jurisdiction. So again, that that air replaces SEM for the credit side of your balance sheet, so you can now use SACA. Now, staying in the credit world, now, even if you're one of the big, big, big global banks who invest a hell of a lot of resources into developing their own internal models, so-called IMM banks. So they have an internal model for measuring credit risk across their very, very complex bilateral portfolios. Even if you're one of those banks with IMI approval from your local regulator, SACA now comes in as an overlay to that. And regulators say, well, hold on, we believe in SACA. And so if you're internal model spits out an RWA number that is too low, we're actually going to floor your credit uh, capital at a percentage of the SACA output, whether that's 70%, 80% depends with time, implementation timelines. Seeing SACA implemented across a number of different areas of reg cap. And so the temptation is to think of it as this kind of overarching supermodel which is going to have 
different impacts at different banks, but everybody is very likely to be impacted by SACA. I think we're saying there the word super to us means many use cases, Correct. right? In multiple regulations, not it's a brilliant model, right? It's a model, right? It clearly, it's far, far better than... I think one thing which, which kind of interests me is, and Chris, you know, give you this question in terms of the change from SEM to SACA for counterparty credit, yeah, that is now live in some jurisdictions, not in most jurisdictions. What does it mean? Which product types that trade, you know, in a market's business, like foreign exchange, clear derivatives, bilateral derivatives, will become less or more attractive? Is it going to be a change on, on what businesses that banks, for example, you know, there's always been a talk that... Uh, client clearing. Again, you know, as iron markets, we have many customers that are clearing brokers, FCMs. There's always been a view that client clearing is very balance sheet intensive, right? Consume too much capital or a lot of capital for the profit required based on some of these rules, right? I guess the question is, you know, I guess in twofold, right? Which businesses in banks are going to benefit from the move to SEM to SACA, which are going to suffer high level? And which products that trade in the marketplace, right, are going to be more attractive? Could you give thoughts on that? So I think you really need to break that down in, into three. One is if you just talk about clear derivatives, followers of the blog know we're very focused on rates in, in FX. So when I talk about clear derivatives, I'm thinking mainly of rates. Okay. I was a swap trader at HSBC 2002 to 2010, 11. That was when markets were beginning to transition to the cleared model. That was before clearing mandates. Fast forward now to clearing mandates with a SACA hat on, most of your swaps will be facing a single CCP. In the case of the major currencies, dollars, euro, sterling, that major CCP is very likely to be LCH swap clear. From a SACA perspective, what that means is you're always measuring net risk versus the same counterparty for rate. If I trade a five-year dollar swap, and that might have Deutsche on one side of it. And when I get out of that trade, it's got City on the other. I have a buy and sell of five years versus two different counterparties at LCH, but I've novated it to LCH for all intents and purposes from a SACA perspective, LCH acts as that netting node. And so from a SACA perspective, I have zero risk. And so I have zero risk weighted assets there. That's great. SACA definitely benefits a business if you think of a typical broker dealer who's doing most of their business in out and runs a relatively flat book, SACA really benefits that type of model as long as it's cleared. Why do I say as long as it's cleared? Because if you look at uncleared derivatives, what SACA does is it grosses up all of your risk exposures across counterparties. So it divides your portfolio into different netting buckets the uh, overarching decider of what a netting bucket is, is what counterparty you're facing. So if I have a bilateral trade facing Deutsche and a bilateral trade facing City, even if I'm risk neutral, my SACA exposure to that gets doubled up. So I think one of the reg outcomes or goals from the crisis in uh, 2008 was a move to clearing yeah, to reduce systemic risk in the industry. So by having a reg measures that also reinforce, so as, well, as well as clearing mandates, by having capital measures that also account for clearing and netting appropriately also gives a incentive, right? Yeah, and it and it's just, just, just kind of makes sense, right? As opposed to SEM that largely ignored most of those netting clearing benefits. Yeah. No, now, Amir, if I just take the counter of that, if you look at FX markets, one of the kind of findings of the, of the GFC and, and subsequent stresses in markets since 
is that FX, even though it's a bilateral market, continues to cope with stressors in the market very, very well. It continues to trade. It continues to uh, operate and people can move risk through FX. However, what SACA does is from a structural perspective, it really penalizes FX businesses. It's increased the risk weights from SEM, broadly speaking. But what it really does is because FX exposures tend to be directional, it's all a bilateral market still. And because those exposures are across hundreds of counterparties, they gross up. So you uh, end up with really the worst case possible uh, under SACA, whereby it's a bilateral market, you have loads of counterparties, and you have loads of directional risk. You bring up a really important point because uh, from what I read, it was widely anticipated that optimization would become more important for the dealer community under SACR. So what does optimization mean for clearing? From a cleared perspective, um, the focus on optimization is probably going to reduce the reliance on compression. Compression is still useful, very valid and useful. Um, it's a sensible thing to do. It reduces your line items. And if you're one of the biggest 30 banks, so captured as a GSIB, gross notional still does feed into GSIB metric. It's still there. It's still a thing. Compression is not about to disappear. But what it means from a, from a risk perspective, if all that risk is cleared, you're at a single netting node already because most CCPs have a dominant market market share in any given risk metric. You know, the need to to move risk around within that CCP is lessened by SACA. Um, but I think from an uncleared perspective, you really want to sweep as much of your uncleared risk into clearing as possible. So swaptions, for example. Swaptions create a huge amount of linear delta in uncleared markets, but those delta hedges are done in clearing. SACA really penalizes that uh, behavior. What you want is the swaption generating the delta or the delta itself to be in clearing, which is then netting against your cleared hedges um, so that your SACA risk netting is as effective as possible. You know, so netting is as old as the sun. It's it's very simple. Um, it's not a very sexy subject, but the whole point of SACA is to just increase the amount of netting that you've got in your book. So because so, we're talking a bit about netting, just very briefly, so clearly, you know, so, so, so what we mean here is that if we have a trade that's in our favor and one against us, should a counterparty default, we can net those two trades and end up with a small net number rather than have to pay them and not get our money, right? So, you know, so it's, it's, it's fundamental to the growth of, of the top market um, in terms of volume, et cetera, et cetera, and, and efficiency, right? So I think we should talk a little bit about, so, so about optimization. What we really mean is going forward to run an efficient business that, that it consumes its resources, which are really capital, its constraints like leverage ratio. It's important to look at the exposures you have in your book and how they can be, I don't know, Chris, rejigged right? To have that most efficient portfolio that still has the same economic outcome. And so from a software perspective, you need access to these metrics and you don't need access to these metrics quarterly. You don't need access to these metrics monthly. You need these daily, you know, so that when you call up your, 
your uh, counterparty, you know what your SACA metric facing them is. Yes. Or you're going to submit a number of these SACA metrics to a third-party optimization provider. It needs to be timely. It needs to be accessible. Gentlemen, I think that there's a lot more to cover. I think it would warrant uh, both of you to come back and give us an update. Um, I think that there's going to also be some um, some other issues that probably pop up, you know, uh, pro soccer and, and against it. And just as as people in the market start to use it. So I think it uh, opens it up for an opportunity to come back and give us an update. I think this is the, the perfect opportunity for you to plug your your blog. Uh, what's your blog address? Where can we find you? Clarisft.com forward slash blog. You will lose days of your life there. I warn you. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we'll close it out. Chris Barnes and Amir Kwaja, thank you for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure having both of you on the podcast. Thank you, Ali. Thanks, Ali. And that's our episode for today. You can follow Ion Markets on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ali Curry. Until next time.